Please turn with me in your scriptures to the book of Romans. Today we will be in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 3. As I mentioned before, this is Reformation Sunday. This is the Sunday which we celebrate uh, Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Church. We will discuss that a little bit more fuller as we go through the sermon. This, um, without being too special, is a special Reformation Day because, as I said, uh, this is the 500th anniversary of that act of Martin Luther, whereby in seeking merely to start a conversation, he started a Reformation or a revolution within the church. And it was centered around these passages, which we will read today in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3. So from Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then turning to chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, our Lord and Father above, as we look more toward that amazing grace that you offer to us, as we look more toward that amazing grace through the life, the ministry, and the teaching of Martin Luther, we ask that you turn our hearts towards you, make us gracious, and help us to embrace that grace even more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't typically title my sermons because, most honestly, I'm not typically that far ahead in my sermon prep to be able to think through and, and name a title for my sermon, but today... I did. This title came to me as I prepared this sermon. And the title of today's sermon is Doctrine Does Matter or How the Monk Who Hated God Changed the Church. In 1384, John Wycliffe died of a stroke. Now, Wycliffe was uh, a, a priest in England. He had spent part of his life at odds with the church, mainly because he saw some abuses within the church. The priests found themselves in a privileged status over the people within the church. He spoke out against the lifestyle that the priests lived. They, they lived above many of their, their congregants. They also lived a, uh, uh, a corrupt lifestyle, and Wycliffe spoke out about that. But what really made the church angry at Wycliffe and sent him into, into exile, so to speak, was he had the audacity to translate the Bible from Latin into English so that the people whom he ministered to could actually read the scriptures. If we are all priests, as if we are all priests under Christ, as Peter says, then Wycliffe believed that the people should have access to the scriptures. 
As I mentioned a minute ago, he died in 1384, but this act of translating the Scriptures made the church so angry that in 1415, he was declared a heretic. Now, if you do the math, that's about 31 years after he died. He was declared a heretic by the church. And 13 years later, it wasn't enough that, they died of a, that he died of a stroke. They actually had his body exhumed so that he could be burned at the stake as a heretic. Grant almost... 50 years after his death. Wycliffe's ministry, however, did not end with him. He greatly influenced a Czech priest by the name of John Hus, or Johann Hus. Um, his last name Hus is Czechoslovakian for goose. He was burned at his stake for his view that the Bible should be the final authority for the, the church and not the pope. And it is said, and this may be apocryphal, this may be just something that was added later in his life, but it is said that as he was burned at the stake, he said, you may cook this goose, but there will come after me a swan that you will not be able to silence. In 1983, Germany celebrated the 500th anniversary of the birth of Martin Luther. And as they had pictures up of Martin Luther throughout Germany, there was a, a picture in the background of his picture of a swan. Many people today see him being the swan that Hus talked about. So today, as we consider the Reformation, I want us to look at the life of Martin Luther, as well as the issue that led him to question the practices of indulgences, and the issue that really led him to hate God for a time, until he fully understood the Scriptures and what it taught about salvation. Now, I grew up in a in a Reformed Presbyterian church, a church very much like this one, and except that we had a Sunday evening service. And on this Sunday, every year, we would gather in the sanctuary of this service. They would break out the old, well, it's probably old now, it probably wasn't old then, but it was an old reel-to-reel -reel projector, and they'd set the screen up there in front of the pulpit, and they would pull out the 1953 motion picture version of the life of Martin Luther. And it would always, they'd set it up on the, on the reel there, it would always kind of skip at the beginning, you'd get halfway through and the, the audio would start to crackle, the audio would get out of sync, out of track with the video, but every year we would watch this black and white movie on Martin Luther. In fact, Mom and I actually kind of make a joke of it, usually about this time of the year when we talk on the phone, we ask if we're going to watch the old black and white movie. That's not what we're watching tonight, by the way. This is a brand new, produced this year, color movie on a DVD. I, I've checked it out. The audio tracks very, very well. There's no static or anything. It's a great opportunity for you to come see. But it's an important story for us to understand. And so we're going to talk a little bit about his life now, and then we'll dive into the doctrine of justification. In 1483, Hans and Margaret. Margareta Luther had a baby boy named Martin. He was born sometime in late November, early December. They weren't as picky about birth dates then as we are now. They were really more concerned about death dates at that time than they were birth dates. Um, but not after that. He was born in the city of Eisleben, Germany. And I'm going to butcher these German names, by the way. I'll just let you know now. He was born in the town of Eisleben, Germany, and they moved uh, to Mansfeld, Germany several very soon after that. Um, Hans, Martin Luther's father, Hans, owned several copper mines and copper foundries, and he had plans for Martin. Martin was going to be a lawyer. 
And so when Martin came of age, uh, when it was time to go to university, his father sent him to Erfurt, Germany, uh, to the university there. And Martin studied to be a lawyer. And by all accounts, by all records, he was an excellent student of the law. And that comes into play later on in his life. On one of his breaks, he was on his way home. On his, or he was at home on one of his breaks. On his way back to university, he was caught in a horrific thunderstorm. Lightning was popping all around him. In fact, one tree very close to him was struck by lightning, and he cried out. He was a good, good Roman Catholic uh, uh, church member, and so he cried out to the patron saint of minors, um, uh, Saint Anne, and he promised Saint Anne that if he survived this thunderstorm, he would go and join the monastery. Well, he survived. And he broke his father's heart. In fact, his father was quite furious with him because the poverty of a monk was not what he had in mind for his son. He wanted an educated, uh, wealthy son. I guess maybe Luther was, was Hans's uh, retirement plan. But uh, he did survive. He did go uh, to the monastery. And in 1507, he was ordained a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, ironically... Uh, you know, we build our churches today and what's under this church. It's or under where I'm standing now under the pulpit. It's probably what either the kitchen or the yeah, it's probably the kitchen, isn't it? Um, during these times, underneath the altar, underneath the pulpit of the church, important figures in the church would be buried and kind of dedicated. The church would be dedicated to them. In an ironic twist, the bishop who oversaw the execution of Jan Hus um, was actually buried underneath the altar where uh, Martin Luther was ordained to be a priest. Now, Martin's life as a monk was anything but peaceful. It, it wasn't full of strife because of war or political difficulty within Germany at the time. It was, it was because of what he studied and what he knew. Remember, he was studying to be a lawyer before he became a monk. And he understood that there are laws. There are good things that happen to you if you keep the law. There are bad things that happen to you if you break the law. But he shifted his study from the law of Germany to the law of God. And he understood that in order to keep the blessings of the law of God, there had to be a perfect keeping of the law of God. And no matter what he did, no matter what the church told him that he should do, in order to find peace and reconciliation with God, he could not find it. Um, in his... In, in writings about him and his autobiographical writings, he would talk about the monks who they had to go to confession every day. Most of the monks in the monastery would spend five to ten minutes in confession and then go about their day. Luther would spend anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours in confession, go do his penance and then forget this and then remember a sin that he had forgotten to confess and then just mentally beat himself up for the rest of the day. He found absolutely no peace. He thought he found his chance to find even more peace in 1510. He and another monk were assigned to go to Rome and represent the monastery where they lived and where they ministered. And a pilgrimage to Rome was kind of one of those things that you had to do in order to kind of, it was one of those things that you needed to do to kind of make sure you made that next step into a right relationship with God. And there were things that he could do there that would help uh, help him come closer to that right relationship with God. And so one of those things was to climb this holy staircase at the Lateran Church. Um, there's 40 or 30 or 40 stairs on this staircase, and it was said that if you 
climbed these stairs on your knees and you stopped on each stair on your knees and you said the Lord's Prayer and the Hail Mary, by the time you got to the top, you could take several hundred thousand years off your time in purgatory. And we'll discuss that here in a few minutes. Um, Luther did this. He stood at the top of the stairs and looked around and it said that he asked himself, who knows if this is true? Luther was so disillusioned with what he found in Rome, he did not find peace in the indulgences of, of going to the Lateran church, of climbing the stairs. He saw priests that took money to say mass. He saw priests that were blatantly corrupt in their lifestyle. And Luther was disillusioned. In 1515, Luther had a turning and he, he understood that the justice and righteousness of God was something that he could not attain and that since God was a just God, he must punish sin. In fact, in later writings, he said this about that time. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punished the sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. It was about the same time that this was happening that he was assigned to teach a class on the book of Romans at the uh, University of Wittenberg, where he began to study Augustine's writings on those first two verses that we read. The first two verses that the righteous will live by faith. The first, the verse 17 that says that the gospel is a righteousness from God revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, where Augustine taught that that was not God's righteousness that we had to attain, but a righteousness that God gave us through the gospel. And this actually led him on a path that, that led to his conversion sometime around 1519. In 1517, Luther was disturbed by the practices of indulgences. Now, if I was a good Catholic and I went to uh, confession every day, I would confess my sins. Um, but if I were to die in sin without having the opportunity to confess, I couldn't quite make it all the way into heaven. So I had to spend some time purging myself of sins after I died. And that's what purgatory was. But Albert of Mainz and uh, Johann Tetzel were actually going around selling time off of, of purgatory. Almost said presbytery. For those of you that have been to a presbytery meeting, you might understand. But I could buy time off of purgatory. And this idea of selling indulgences was being used. Albert of Mines sold indulgences so he could earn enough money to bribe the Pope to give him a bishopric, give him a, a, a status as a bishop in three different dioceses. Johann Tetzel at the, at the, uh, um, with the blessing of the Pope was selling indulgences so they could uh, build St. Peter's Basilica where the the Roman church is housed today. And so Luther questioned these, these premises and he wrote 95 statements on a piece of paper, probably several pieces of paper, and he nailed them to the church at the Wittenberg door. Now, sometimes we see people nailing stuff to the door of a church as a, as a symbol of violence or a symbol of protest. This would have been the same thing, you know, downtown Lewisburg there by the green space, they have the bulletin board downtown where if you wanna make an announcement or something, you can post it on that bulletin board. This was basically what he was doing. 
He wrote in Latin these 95 theses. He posted it on the door so that another professor that came by, another priest that came by could read him and he could start a discussion. That's all he wanted to do. He wanted to start a discussion. Well, some of his students came by and they read these 95 theses. They translated them during German and they took them to a friend who had a brand new invention called a printing press. And these 95 theses, this post went viral, if you will. Within two weeks, every hamlet, every town, every city in Germany had a copy of these 95 theses hanging in the town square. Now, the church initially ignored Luther and his writings. Uh, the Pope at the time said, oh, this is nothing but the ramblings of a drunken monk, a drunken German monk, and once he sobers up, he'll change his mind. So in a sense, he never really sobered up. Uh, but ultimately, in uh, was this 1521, they took him to the town of Worms, um, which is spelled Worms, W-O-R-M-S, and they took him to a, a diet or a diet. So if you ever read about Martin Luther and his diet of worms, that's not what he ate. That just happens to be the name of the trial at the town that he was in. Uh, at the end of the trial, he was asked to recant, and he kind of chickened out. He said, give me 24 hours to think about this. I'll give you my answer tomorrow. He came back the next day and he said this. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. And then there are some apocryphal writings. He may or may not have said this next part, but he said, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. Amen. Luther was ultimately found guilty. He should have been executed for his heresy, but uh, a local ruler actually kidnapped him and hid him for a time. Um, he ended up marrying Catherine von Bora. He still served as the preacher and the teacher at the University of Wittenberg. And in 1546, uh, for church business, he was visiting his birth town of Eisleben, Germany. He became sick and died. So that is just a brief biography of Martin Luther. Um, what's important about this man? Why do we make such a big deal about this and the nailing of his 95 theses to the door of the Church of Wittenberg? Hopefully you also noticed that he nailed the 95 Theses in 1517, but according to his own writing, he was not converted. He did not become a Christian until two years later. Hopefully you noticed that. What's centered around the, 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 the doctrine of indulgences and what's centered around what caused Martin Luther so much difficulty is what, we, is what we call today the doctrine of justification. And it centers around how do we, how do we become righteous? Martin Luther understood what hopefully we here understand as well. God is a holy God. God is a perfect God. God is a righteous God, a just God. And his righteousness and justice work together. His righteousness says that he has given laws, he has given a standard of right and wrong that we as humans, we as his creation, must live up to. His justice says that if we break those laws, the breaking of the law demands a punishment, and God has set forth a punishment, and that punishment is death. It's not just our physical death, although that's part of it, but it's the death of eternal separation from God in hell. 
And what the church of Martin Luther's time taught was that justification was a lifelong process. At the time of baptism, which happened as an infant, God's grace, God's righteousness was poured into the person being baptized. So at that point, at baptism, you were righteous before God. And then it's your responsibility to keep that righteousness. Now, you could lose the righteousness because you would sin. We all sin. The church admitted that. And so they added a sacrament called penance. And the sacrament of penance involved going to your priest, confessing to your priest, and then your priest gave you a means by which you might find absolution and re-earn your righteousness. For small sins, for those, quote, little white lies, it may be something as simple as saying the Lord's Prayer and one or two Hail Marys on your rosary, and you go your merry way, and the priest absolves you, and you, you move on. You are re-righteous with God. If it's something large, like one of the mortal sins, like adultery or murder or things like that, your penance was much larger. You had to do much more in order to earn that righteousness. They also developed the doctrine of purgatory, where if you died in sin without having the opportunity to confess that sin, well, you're no longer righteous, but you originally had righteousness poured into you, so you still have a chance. Your soul rests in this kind of in-between state. You're not in heaven. You're not in hell. It's, it's not quite as, as comfortable as heaven, but it's definitely nowhere near as uncomfortable as hell. And you just have to wait until your soul purges itself of those sins. That's what I said when he climbed those steps and he earned several hundred thousand years off his time in purgatory. If, if you didn't need all of that time for yourself, you could give it to somebody else who had maybe passed on before you. Luther's understanding of how law worked, Luther's understanding of how the theology of the church at the time that he lived in led him to just question his ability to ever be righteous enough before God to earn heaven. And rightly so. Because the scriptures teach that none of us are righteous enough and none of us can do anything to be righteous enough. And it's up to us later in his writings, he said, if the chain of my salvation is dependent upon even something as little as my fingerprint in order to be secure, the chain will melt away. And, but Luther didn't discern that until later in his life. But what Luther began to understand in his study of Romans and his study of the Scriptures and his study of the New Testament and his study of what Augustine wrote on the book of Romans, specifically Romans chapter 1, he began to understand that God is not only just, but God is the justifier. Now, what does it mean that God is the justifier? It doesn't mean that God pours his righteousness into us and we do everything we can to kind of hold that righteousness in so it doesn't leak out of us before we die. What it meant was what we read in those catechism questions, specifically question 60. God looks at us, quote, as if I had never sinned or been a sinner, as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I needed to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Justification is not something that's poured into us. It's something that we're covered with. Christ was righteous on our behalf. Christ kept the law of God as a perfect human being. 
He satisfied the justice of God in taking upon Himself the punishment for the sins of those who would believe, those who would be gifted grace through faith. And Luther, when he understood this, when he understood that justification had nothing to do with him, but everything to do with God, he said this, Here I felt I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther said that he was rescued from the hell of personal righteousness and delivered to the heaven of Jesus' righteousness. We have three benefits that we find in this doctrine of justification through faith. The, the, the reformers, Martin Luther is not the only reformer. There was Martin Bootser, there's John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, a whole bunch of people that did this. Luther wasn't the only one to be doing this. There were people that came before him like Wycliffe and Huss and other men. Um, God worked providentially through the church to lead up to this point in this time. Um, but Luther, they, they formed this statement. They said that justification is by grace alone. In other words, God's gift to us, it's uh, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. So justification is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. Now, faith is not the work that we do. Faith is the empowering of the Holy Spirit for us to believe and to trust in the work that Christ has done. Remember, there's no work that we can do. We have to grasp for ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit, the work that Christ has done. So that's it. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the work of Christ alone, as revealed in scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. Why is that part important? If I can earn it, who gets the glory? Me. If I can earn my salvation, if I can earn my righteousness, if I can be successful in holding that righteousness in my end, in on my own until I reach heaven, it's mine, baby. I can boast all I want. Look what I did. Look what I earned. Man, I earned heaven. You deserve, I deserve all of your blessings. If it has nothing to do with me, who gets the glory? God and God alone. Why, does, why did God create this earth? To bring himself glory. Why did God allow sin to happen? To bring himself glory, even though I don't understand how that works, it does. Why did God allow Christ to die that horrible death on the cross? Isaiah 53 says, because it brought God glory. All this has happened because glory alone, and if it's not up to me, it's, and it's only up to him, he gets all the glory. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. There are three benefits. There are three uh, things that come to us through this doctrine of justification. The first is peace. Luther wrestled with his unrighteousness and he wrestled with the righteousness of God, which was the standard he had to live up to until the time when he found out that the righteousness of Christ covered him to the point where God saw him as righteousness as righteous. And Luther finally found peace. The second benefit we have is access. We pray to God. We cry out to God in the midst of our struggles. We cry out to God in the midst of our sicknesses. We cry out to God in the midst of our joys and our praises. The Israelites of the Old Testament had to access God through a priest. They could not go into the presence of God because of their unholiness and God's holiness. That barrier has been ripped. And because we are holy through Christ's work, we have direct access to God. 
through Him. And thirdly, we have rejoicing in hope. Could you imagine if you truly understood the weight of your sin? Trying to earn righteousness? No joy in that at all. But because of our justification, because of the righteousness that Christ earns for us, we have the hope of an eternity with God. And even when we are weighed down by our sins, even when we go, Lord, I am so sorry, I've done that for the millionth time, and I told you last time I wouldn't do it again, but please forgive me just one more time, I'll do my best not to do it again. But I know I'm going to do it the millionth and one, millionth and first. We can have hope. That we will see heaven because we are clothed in the righteousness of God. And it's not ours, it's His. And nothing we can do can lose it, can cause us to lose it. Many people today, 500 years later, ask, you know, is it even necessary anymore to talk about and to think about and to continue the Reformation? One of the slogans of the Reformation was reformed and always reforming the church of God. Do we still have to keep doing this? In the Council of Trent, which happened about 30 to 50 years, it was about a 20 year long process uh, where the uh, uh, it happened about 20 years after Martin Luther. It was about a 20 or 30 year process. They they wrote down the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church in response to Martin Luther and his view of justification. Um, They wrote all these things down Uh, in the late 20th century. The Council of Trent was reaffirmed in the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, if you read the Roman Catechism today, it still talks about the pouring in, the infusion of righteousness instead of the covering on in righteousness. In the 80s and 90s, uh, a document came out called uh, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and they agreed on every single doctrine except one. The doctrine of justification and how we are made righteous before God. But it's not just the relationship between the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church. That's not the only reason that we need to keep this forefront in our mind and keep fighting for right belief on what salvation means. Lifeway Research did a study on Americans and American churches. And what they found was that 52% of evangelical Christians, that's Christians who claim to believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that everything it says is true, and that everything it says about salvation is true, 52% of those people believe that you earn your salvation. Statistically, as I look out from here, half of you believe that you can earn your salvation. Now... I really hope and pray that after almost nine years of being here, that's not true in this congregation, but statistically it is. Statistically, 52% of you are Roman Catholic at best. Now, I see a lot of you shaking your heads. Thank you very much. The bad news is that 52% of the world of American Christians think that they can earn their salvation. The good news is that you can't. Now, that doesn't sound like good news because it sounds like you're lost forever. But it's good because of this. Martin Luther was haunted by the truth. If I can be righteousness enough to earn my salvation, which he didn't think he could. But he said, if I could be righteous enough to earn my salvation, then I can be unrighteous enough to lose it. That's the other thing, that if it's up to you to grasp it, if you have it within your power to grasp righteousness, You have it within your power to let it go. 
as well. Thanks be to God that you don't, that I don't. Thanks be to God that it's Jesus' work only because there would be no hope without it. The words of Isaiah 53 where it talks about, you know, by His stripes we are healed would be invalid to us. What did Jesus say from the cross? Did He say, my part's done, now it's up to you guys? No. He said, it is finished. Justification is important. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone. It's kind of one of those building blocks that if it's gone, all this falls apart. And we are the biggest of fools. What I leave you with today is that once you are justified, there is nothing that can change your status before God. That millionth and first time that you commit that sin, it cannot change your status before God. That millionth and second time that you commit that sin that you've confessed and asked forgiveness for, it cannot change your status before God. Nothing that I say, nothing that any minister says, nothing that any man of God says can change your status before God. Because you are justified by faith alone. I'll close with this. Paul spends eight chapters in the book of Romans speaking about justification and its importance in the life of the Christian. And he finishes that section with these words from chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, we not, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then answer to, in answer to that question he asked just a moment ago, he says, shall, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from God? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that includes you. Nothing you can do can separate you from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord if you have embraced that justification by faith. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we do thank you that we are saved through Christ's righteousness. It is not ours. It is not by works. We have nothing to boast about except for Jesus and his work. Help us to live in the light of that justification. Help us drive that truth deep into us and help us to love you all the more because of it. Give us the change in attitude that Luther had from that hatred of you to the just absolute embrace and love of your gospel, of your salvation, and of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.